I'm Emily Kumler, and this is Empowered Health. So if you're pregnant or you have been pregnant, you have probably been told all kinds of things that didn't seem super logical, right? Like, did somebody ever tell you you shouldn't drink any alcohol? And yet, when you were in Europe last summer, you definitely saw pregnant women drinking wine. Or what about sushi? That was one that drove me crazy. I couldn't have sushi while I was pregnant, and I wondered, what in the world do Japanese women do? They don't eat any sushi during their whole pregnancy? That doesn't make any sense. So our guest this week, Emily Oster, is a professor of economics at Brown, and she's basically taken all of the pregnancy and child early sort of child development recommendations and looked into the actual data behind those recommendations and then offered up some new advice. Her first book was called Expecting Better, which was a play on words from the what to expect when you're expecting book that we're all given when we announce to our friends that we're pregnant. And that really did a deep dive into what these sort of recommendations are and whether they're really applicable or not. And then her most recent book, Crib Sheet, which Amy Schumer is like blasting all over social media because she loved it so much, is doing the same thing only for the first few years of life. What I really loved about Emily's work was that it felt very much in line with what we're trying to do at Empowered Health, which is to get you good information. I am Emily Oster. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University, and I'm the author of two books, uh, Expecting Better, which is about pregnancy, and Crib Sheet, which is about parenting. I have so many questions for you. I feel like we could talk all day long. I think the work you're doing is fantastic just to sort of kick it off because I think so much of the way that we talk about information today is about almost like personal narrative. You know, as a news person, I, I get the power of a personal story, but I also think we get away from some of the real data points. So what we're trying to do with this podcast and with the column that I write for Boston Magazine is to like really dial in on like, what is the data? What are some points of fact, I guess you could say, now that becomes subjective too, of course, that we can rely on in terms of our own health. And so I think the work you're doing is so important because I think so much of the sort of female experience, I guess, from a medical perspective, as well as like a just sort of experiential perspective seems subjective. So let's just start a little bit talking about the guidelines that moms tend to get about pregnancy. And how did you get into that topic as an economist? Yeah, so I uh, I got pregnant is the sort of short answer to that. And like a lot of women, you know, I went to my first prenatal visit, all excited, puking. Uh, and I got, <laughs> you know, they gave me like this, just this list almost on the way out. They were like, oh, by the way, here's this list of all the stuff that you can't eat. And, you know, there were some things on this list that I knew would be on there, like coffee or, or wine. But then there were like a million other things, hot dogs, turkey, you know, de- different kinds of deli meats, cheese, all sorts of stuff. And as so I said, oh, OK, well, can you tell me like why and, you know, which of these are the most important? And they were like, no, that's the list. See you later. Goodbye. And so I, I found that experience sort of su- surprising, I guess. Uh, and I wanted to to really understand, you know, the reasons for these the restrictions, why some things are restricted and some things are, are not. Um, and this came up over and over again during pregnancy, not just around questions like what can you eat, but around questions like, you know, what's the right kind of pain relief during have to have during labor or what's the right kind of prenatal testing to have, or can I sleep on my on my side, you know, or my back. And and I felt like in a lot of situations I was just told, okay, well this is the this is the guideline, like this is the rule. And there wasn't enough explanation of why. 
And so I started trying to figure that out for myself. And my job is is an economist, but I'm sort of a health economist. And I do a lot of work around medical literature and uh, public health literature. And so I read a lot of those kind of papers in my uh, in my job. And so I started sort of reading them for myself. And I found, you know, sometimes there was a good reason for these restrictions, but sometimes there wasn't. And ultimately, the, the book, particularly the first book, is really about saying, okay, which of these restrictions are really supported by data and which of them are, are maybe not. So some of those are things like the alcohol restriction. Yes, some of those are things like the alcohol restriction. I can remember when I was pregnant, like I actually had a very close friend who has high blood pressure normally in her day-to-day life. So her pregnancy was like a little bit more complicated. And her doctor, when she was like in her third trimester, was like, you know, I just want you to have a glass of wine at the end of the day, like try to relax. And she was like, where do you suggest I do that? Like in my closet? Because... There's no way that I can like go at a restaurant and enjoy like a nice glass of red wine. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously like in Europe, you have the counter point where like women are often having a glass of wine. And I remember, you know, just sort of anecdotally thinking, I feel like so many of these recommendations are whether it's like sushi or wine or whatever, are sort of like the lowest, like they're catering to the lowest common denominator, right? So like they don't trust that like I'm going to have one glass of wine. They assume that we're all alcoholics and we're going to drink six glasses of wine. And so therefore no one's allowed to have any. Yeah, I think that's right. And certainly with the wine stuff, there is very much this feeling of like, okay, well, we all understand, and this is totally right, that having, you know, two or three or is like not good. And so if we tell people they can have one, then maybe they'll think it's okay to have to have four and, you know, or they won't be able to stop. I, you know, I find that in some ways a little bit disrespectful because I don't think that's... Well, I was going to say it's infantilizing, right? It's like what we do yeah. to children. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I, and I think that there's a little bit of a resistance to sort of like tell people, you know, this is what the evidence says because of this concern about overreaction. And I think this comes up not just in these kind of restrictions, but in many places in pregnancy, it can feel very infantilized. Like you're sort of being told, okay, this is what you're going to do. And just like, that's because that's the way, like that's the way it works. And I think that part of the goal with the first book is to sort of help people be more involved in those decisions. And by by helping them understand a little bit more about what what the decisions are they're going to be facing and and how to think about the trade-offs. And so what were some of the big takeaways that you found in researching that? Like, were there certain things in particular that you felt were really sort of backwards In addition to sort of this idea of being like demeaning in a way or infantilizing that you were sort of like, this is not actually accurate. There are a number of those. I mean, one that stands out is bed rest. So actually, a lot of women are put on bed rest in their pregnancies. And that is not a good idea. There is basically no pregnancy condition for which bed rest has been shown to be effective. Uh, And it also has a lot of downsides in terms of like loss of muscle, you know, muscle tone and and other kinds of circulation. Circulation Yeah. Other other reasons it's not a good idea. Now that's, that's a sort of interesting case where on the one hand, actually that is, that recommendation, like no one should be on bed rest is totally in line with the kind of frontline medical literature. So if you asked like the ACOG, if you asked the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, is this a good idea? Their, their recommendation is that it is not. But yet in practice, it is very com- still very, very common to prescribe this. And so in some sense, like I, I find that to be a, a really a challenging thing to push beyond that, you know, people are getting kind of, there's like one piece of advice from the official governing body and one piece of advice from your doctor and kind of one piece of advice from the evidence. And how do you know which of these things you should do when they're all saying something different? And so what is your advice on something like that? Like how to navigate? Yeah, I, th- I think that in pregnancy, you're going to have 
interactions, there's going to be a, like a medicalization of pregnancy. And so, of course, one thing is like picking a provider that you're that you're comfortable with. I think the other you know piece of advice sometimes they give people is like, you know, look at the literature, like try to understand for yourself what you think is is right and then try to engage directly on that. So if they say, you know, well, we're going to put you on bed rest try to engage on like the question of, of why, like, can you explain to me why you think that's a good idea? Here is some evidence that I have in the other direction. You know, what, like, what do you think about that? Because sometimes the answer is like, yeah, you know, the evidence is on, on average this, but here's why I think that's right for you. And sometimes the answer will be like, oh, I don't know. I just put everybody on bed rest, in which case maybe that's not, not the right choice for you. I mean, there is something from a, like sort of thinking about the physiology of a pregnant woman's body of this bed rest idea feels very much like mansplaining, like man explanation. <laughs> like we don't want, you know, like if you walk around, the baby it's will slip out of your out. vagina. Yes. I know. Right? <laughs> like, so lie down. lie down. Just like don't move. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think that it just turns out that like it doesn't just slip out like that. That's not, that's not right. how it works. Which is why probably ACOG and others have now progressed beyond this idea of like just sending a woman home. I mean, I sort of feel like with bed rest, it always feels to me like that's sort of a reason to not have to work. I mean, like to like get your maternity leave early or like be on disability, right? And so like, are you actually supposed to be like in bed flat all day? Like that's ridiculous. Even after people have like their knees replaced, we're trying to get them to move right. as soon as possible. So like, why would we ever think that was a good idea? But it does seem like from a like cartoon perspective, like, yeah, well, if you're vertical, God knows what's going to happen. It's all going to come falling out. So right. don't do that. I think the other thing is that that in that case, you know, actually, if you prescribe bed rest frequently, it's often going to look like it worked because like when women go into preterm labor and then labor stops, actually for a lot of them, they, you know, it doesn't like it doesn't go back again. Like people do go to full term. And so if you prescribe bed rest a lot, you will often find that those people do well. And then it's like, oh, the bed rest must have worked. But of course, like it's not that the bed rest worked. It just that would have happened anyway. But it's hard to ignore that feedback in your lived experience. You mean as a doctor sort of attributing it to this? Yeah prescribed yeah. treatment. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's an attribution bias that's pretty common, I think. So moving to the next book, I feel like this sort of feels now like it's following your own progression of your life experiences, <laughs> which is right. Like, I mean, I feel like the creative process is often just yep. a development of things we experience. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, that book was a huge success. And I feel like it is sort of like the counterpoint to all of the crap that we've all been told forever, while also like giving some really important information about you know, like, these are things to be nervous about. And maybe these are things not to be nervous about. Yeah. So I mean, in some ways, I think that the second book, Crib Sheet, has a little bit of a different central tension than the than the first one. So I think a lot in a lot of the experiences in pregnancy, the the conflict or tension can can often be sort of with like trying to manage the medical aspects of the of the pregnancy. Um, and I think that that when you have a kid, if you ask sort of what is like anxiety provoking, it's not really for many people, it doesn't have much to do with the medical system. It's more like you have conflict with like the other people in your family, people you see on the street, yourself, the internet, you know, the sort of pressures that come with people telling you what to to do about your about your kid. And sort of combined with the fact that like every minute there appears to be a new decision and every decision feels like it is the most important decision you will ever make about anything, even if it is very tiny. And so a lot of crib sheet is about 
kind of saying, okay, here's how to structure this decision. You know, here is, here is the evidence on the benefits and costs of breastfeeding. Here's how to think about it. You know, here is the evidence on the risks around sleep. You know, here is how you should, should think about it. So it's almost more like structuring the, the decisions for people rather than saying the right decision is this. Well, you're giving people real data, right? And yes. then allowing them to make their own choices. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of the point is that, you know, the data is kind of, it is what it is. So the data says what the, it says the benefits and costs of some, of some decision. But even with the same data, two people will probably not make the same choice or they may not make the same choice. And that you have to combine that data with your, with your preferences and kind of recognize that, that the choices are not going to be the same for everybody. And I think for me, that's like a little bit freeing because I, I think what I found so hard about some parts of parenting is the feeling like, well, I'm doing it, maybe I'm doing this differently than other people. And that must kind of, maybe that means like my way is wrong, or it must be that their way is wrong, as opposed to being like, yeah, nobody's way is wrong. There are just a lot of different right ways to to do this stuff. Not everything is like that, but many things. And do you think that that's different today than it was, say, for our moms? I don't, you know, people ask this a lot, like, you know, is this, are we parenting in a more, like, is this, are we more anxious about parenting? Are we more, um, more engaged with it? Is it, is it harder? And, you know, I I do have that impression that there's, I think partly there's more evidence around that people are kind of looking at. Partly we're parenting older. And so we're probably more used to uh, making decisions on our own and more used to having things that we try to achieve work out for us. I'm not sure. But I also think that you kind of forget the experience of early parenting. And so some of the impression that I get from, like, say, my mother about how relaxed she was, I don't think that's really true. I think that she was probably also not relaxed. And but just, of course, reflecting 40 years later on it, she's like, oh, yes, I was very chill, very chilled out. Um, Yeah, no, I've had this conversation with my mom, too, where I'm like, she's like, I don't understand why your kids don't sleep through the night. Like you all slept through the four kids in my family, right? Like you all slept through the night by the time you were like two weeks old. Like it was like something ridiculous. And I'm like that mom, that's not possible. Right. And And then thinking about it, I'm like, you didn't have a baby monitor. Right. Right. How did you know? Big house. Right. Like, I'm sure if I was like four and woke up in the middle of the night and cried, I like cried myself back to sleep because I was like too scared to get out of my bed. You know what I mean? Like, and you never were the wiser. So it's not like being neglectful. But it's also like you just it wasn't in your periphery. <laughs> no, no, totally. It's right. I have that conversation all the time with her. She's like, you know, I don't know why, like, you know, it's like, what, what is this big deal about like breastfeeding? You know, it was no problem for me to breastfeed all the time, all of you. And I was like, well, did you have a breast pump? And she's like, no, don't be ridiculous. When I wasn't with you, you used formula. And I was like, okay, <laughs> she's like, you just told me. This, I was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> Let's move on. Right, right. Yeah, actually, I feel like one of the biggest arguments my mom and I got in when I had very little kids was I had gone to the pediatrician and I said something to him about some advice that my mom had given me. And the pediatrician was basically like, yeah, so here's the deal. Like grandparents don't remember this stage of life. So they mean, well, they're giving you advice, but like you actually should just not listen to them. And in a fit of fury, I repeated that to my mother. And she was immediately like, you know, now to this day, like five years later, she like hates our pediatrician. (laughs) Oh, I know where that comes from. But like, you know, I think that was actually probably really good advice because I think people do want to give advice. Right. But we I mean, I don't remember like seven years ago. I don't remember when my son was a baby. Like, I mean, I feel like I do. And I look at pictures and it brings back memories. But like the day to day, no way. I don't remember like the timing for naps or all that crap. I mean, like also the thing you I think you really forget is just how like 
all encompassing and exhausting it it is in the in the moment mm-hmm. um you know i mean sleep deprivation is like a really big problem for people and you know as an a parent of older kids i'm like oh i'm so tired but of course it's like I'm not actually so tired. It's not like when you're when you have an infant, but I think that it's uh, it can be very hard to be sort of empathetic about how overwhelming uh, that that period can be. Yeah, I actually there was a some app that I was using to track feedings and track sleep, and I remember I don't know it, it was with my son, and I he was probably let's say he was like six weeks old, and I remember I was nursing him like 43 hours a week, and I was like that's a full time job, like just having him nurse is taking up the same amount of time as most people work, right? Like that's insane. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's it's insane. But you know, it's interesting to me because I am like very interested in this like sort of postpartum period where people are feeling or they're being diagnosed more, right, with some sort of anxiety or depression. And the medicalization of the pregnancy, and I think sort of your point of like, there's a lot of this stuff that's recommended that may not actually be based in numbers. And again, like some of the stuff just hasn't been studied, right, and or studied properly. And we know that women are taking lots of medications that, you know, they haven't been involved in clinical trials for when they're pregnant. So there's a for me, this seems like there's still a lot of wild cards, like there's still a lot of stuff we just don't know, and we can make our best guess. But we don't have a lot of data for, but it definitely seems like there is more intervention with pregnancy. Like, and when I say intervention, I mean like doctor's appointments, tests, right? Like there's all this genetic testing you can do now, right? That for me anyway, I felt, and I feel like anecdotally with friends, it seems like people are constantly going from one appointment to the next Do you know what I mean? Like you're sort of like, okay, it's this checkup. Okay, everything's okay. Now I can go to this checkup. Okay, it's okay. And like I've said this before on this podcast, but like my mom, you know, four kids and she, I remember her saying to me like, you know, my pregnancies were like so calm because I went to the doctor like, you know, once a trimester or whatever. And then she was like, I think I had like one ultrasound with your brother who was like the last of the kids. And she was like, other than that, they were basically like, you know, if you're bleeding, come call us, you know, (laughs) like otherwise you're fine. Whereas I feel like for our generation, it's much more of like, oh, my God, we have to check all these things. And do you want to know? Do you not want to know? And that sort of sets the tone in a way for like, almost like looking for something negative. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I haven't thought much about that. But I, I think that you're that you're right that it is. I mean, you're certainly right that it has gotten this has gotten sort of more medicalized. And I think the the other thing that happens there is that there's a sort of sense in which like all of these are like opportunities to like be achieving the correct pregnancy, mm-hmm. you know, and which relates then to the sort of like achieving the correct baby. And somehow like parenting becomes more of this has become more of a thing that's like, this is something like I'm going to I'm going like, to do it right. You know, I'm going to go to the I'm going to have the appointments. I'm going to do the right kind of testing. I'm going to have the like, I'm going to be sure that everything is right here. I'm going to measure the right amount. I'm going to do this. And then, you know, once I have the baby, I'm going to have it's going to be rolling over at the right time. It's going to be doing this other stuff. And here's all the the ways in which I'm going to I'm going to intervene to to make that happen. Or I control, that, yeah. I mean, or like, control. I yeah. mean, I think, yeah, fundamentally, we seem to expect a measure of control in parenting, which is very challenging to achieve with a baby who is not really subject to being controlled. And I remember that was SIDS as well, that like I had this feeling that if, the baby was right next to me. And, you know, babies are like, <gasps> they do all the weird, yeah, they do weird, the weird noises. And I would like hop up. up in the middle of the night and like pick the baby up, you know, and wake them up. Right. And so now we're both awake and now we have another feeding and like blah, 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 blah. Right. Which is probably more negative. But I had some instinct that like if I could get there before the breathing stopped, that I would save the baby, which is like 
absurd. But I think this idea of control is sort of becomes inherent in the way that we are both instructed and also simultaneously challenging the instructions that were given. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think we just have this. Uh, yeah, there's so many things in this parenting where we just feel like we can get we can get it if I can only figure this out. And I think the other thing is that you look for patterns in ways that particularly with a small baby are crazy. You know, I remember we kept this spreadsheet of like exactly how many minutes she like ate on each side, you know, and it was in this and how many times she peed and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, it was like, I think the idea was just like, okay, we can figure it out. Like maybe the time that she ate for 18 minutes, then she slept for like three and a half hours. So like, maybe that's the magic number. Like, right. let's try to get exactly that. Number. <laughs> this is like, this is, and of course, by the time you have a second kid, you realize like, oh, it's just like, whatever, you know, you can't really control that. But, but I think that there, there is this sort of illusion, uh, illusion of control when you try to kind of get it right. Yeah, or this constant need for reassurance, right? Because that's the flip side of it for me anyway, is like this idea of like, I want to control the outcome so that the outcome is not negative. But I also want some indication that I'm doing it correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But to your point, like, I feel like when my daughter was born, I took her to the pediatrician. She was like, I don't know, let's say three weeks old. And I was like, I think something's wrong. She's sleeping for like 23 hours a day. Like she wakes up, she nurses, she goes back to sleep. And the doctor is like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm in the other room playing with my son. And he's like, well, so the difference is that you're just not on top of her. So like every time right. she wakes up, you're not like, okay, you're awake. You want to feed? Like, are you okay? Okay, let's go play. Like, whatever. <laughs> you're just kind of letting her be. And he's like, she's fine to sleep that much. And I was like, you know, so with him, I was worried he never slept. And with her, she slept too much. It's like, right. It's it, always a problem. Right. It's always something. It's never the right amount. Are there other topics within the sort of realm of female health or women's health um, that you feel like are underserved in terms of people aren't talking about them, but that are really important? you know, going back to the postpartum stuff, like I do think that the sort of postpartum recovery stuff, it has not gotten, the does not get the kind of attention that it needs. And I think, you know, part of it is like, maybe it relates to, to the amount of attention that you get during pregnancy. <laughs> that sort of like when you're pregnant, it's like people are very, very focused on you and the medical system is very focused on you and everyone is very focused on like protecting you and whatever, sometimes to the point of bothering you. And then you have this baby and like all of a sudden we're sort of very focused appropriately on the on the baby, but we kind of lose the mom a, a little bit. And I think that a lot of people are very surprised at the extent of to which like sort of this is a physically draining time period. Um, you know, you're bleeding a lot. Everything's all messed up. You're exhausted. Your boobs hurt. Your nipples are all cracked. Well, and your and sense then, of identity has been completely changed, right? Exactly. You're now no longer an individual. You're like you have a dependent. You're like somebody's mom and you're yeah. just like, like a cow, you know? Right. It's, and, and, you know, it's, it's all also has many very nice aspects and, you know, you have a baby, whatever. It's all, it's all great, but it is, it is really jarring. And I, I think that we, that isn't very visible. And I, I'm not sure whether, I think that, you know, there would be a time when, of course, you know, you would have had this baby in the village and you would have been around, you would have seen tons of other people have a baby and people will be checking on you, whatever. But like, we don't live in that environment now. Women are like home by themselves, you know, with their baby for a long time. And, you know, you only see people who are out. They look like they got it together. You know, they left the house apparently with their baby. Um, and here you are, you know, in your Lululemon pants and you haven't washed your hair and like, why, you know, why is, why am I not achieving this? 
for me, I feel like that actually starts at like a systemic level. Like I have a ongoing spreadsheet that I can share with you if you're interested about funding in terms of NIH funding and uh-huh. how much goes to mom versus how much goes to baby and like how these two have been lumped together. I mean, I kind of joke that it's like fruits and vegetables. Like these are not the same things at all. And yet we always refer to like, eat your fruits and vegetables. It's like, why? Like, they're not the same. And mom and baby are not the same, right? Totally different. Like biologically, they're different. Psychologically, they're different. Like all their needs are different. And yet like, they're always lumped together. And sometimes the needs are, are, can be like a little, can be a little bit in conflict, you know, and I think when we talk about things like, you know, breastfeeding, you know, I think a lot of the benefits that people say about breastfeeding are overstated, but there are some benefits and, you know, probably like if it was totally, totally costless to everyone else, we would have, we would say, yeah, like that's a good idea for babies to be, to be breastfed, but it, it is really hard and, and really challenging and potentially really costly and debilitating for the mom. And we, we sort of, it's hard to think about those trade-offs, but they are trade-offs and they are they are sometimes in a little bit of conflict. And I think it's important not to forget that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that the whole image of mom is such a, I mean, like, I'm not going to articulate this well, but like, it's such a big deal to have your identity shift, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember taking a baby class and we it was like the babies were all like nine months old and we were all bitching about like how we couldn't fit into the genes that we had before we were pregnant. And, you know, like it was sort of like this nice commiseration where everybody was in the same boat. And the instructor was basically like, I just want to stop you guys for a second, because in most cultures, in most places, you guys would still be like basically in the house with like your whole community bringing you food and checking on you and making sure that you're feeling happy and like taking you for walks and like taking care of the baby so you could sleep. You guys have this idea that like this happens, you get the baby and then next thing you know, you're like at the stroller class and like everything's fine and like like you just made a human being. You made a human, right? Like that is the most incredible thing you might ever do in your entire life, probably will be. Like give yourself a minute. And that really stuck with me because I do think that like we don't give ourselves or other mothers permission to just take a minute and be like, you just made a fucking human, like in your body without having to think about it. Like that's insane in terms of like things that we can accomplish in our lives, right? Like that's bananas. And yet, like, we kind of assume, like, it's not really going to have any impact other than, like, I'm just going to feel so much love and happiness and, like, whatever. And I think, you know, even there have been times that I've had conversations with my dad or, like, with other men who are, like, you know, you have a baby. Do you know how many people, like, want a baby? And, like, now you have one. Like, you should be so happy. And it's, like, wait, am I not supposed to say anything negative because that somehow negates the positive? These things are coexisting in my head. Why can I not articulate them? My whole life, I've kept journals. And when I had a really hard time postpartum, there was a part of me that thought, maybe I shouldn't be writing this down. Because what happens if my kids go back and read it, and they think that like they made it really hard for me? Mm -hmm. And in that exercise of questioning whether I should express myself in a way that I always do privately, right? I mean, like, that's not for anybody else to read. But I do think like, you know, you never know if you're going to get hit by a bus and people are going to find it. And, you know, that's really interesting because that to me is a very clear cut way of like the idea of sort of self-editing of like what is acceptable and what is not. And what is my responsibility as a mom to my children to make them not feel that they did something that was hard for me? 
Do you know what I mean? But like, that's ridiculous because it's like the hardest things in life that end up being the biggest periods of growth, I think. And so why can I not be open about how motherhood is hard? Because that might make the child feel badly or it makes society feel badly or it makes people feel like there's something flawed in me that I don't just love being a mom all the time. Like that's really hard. Yeah. No, and I think there is in this sort of mom space, like a a kind of, I, I don't know, this this idea that sort of saying like, I, yeah, I, I made some choice because it made it easier for me or like I don't – like every minute with my kid is not like the, the blessing that – you know, like that's like somehow very frowned upon. And I – you know, in the wake of this of this second book, I've been – I you know, some of the things that people say on the internet are not, are not so nice. But – and some of them, you know, many of the sort of criticisms I get are around like, you know – you know, when you choose to have a kid, that means your job is mom. And what you should be doing is at all times thinking about how you can better serve your kid. And, you know, you shouldn't put them in daycare because that's a daytime orphanage. And, you know, why did you become a mom if you just wanted to have some other people take care of your kid all the time? And, you know, you shouldn't, you know, why should you, you shouldn't sleep train because like, you know, I don't because that's somehow that's being a mom is about being there every second. And every time they cry, you need to be responding to them because that is what it is to be a mom. And I think that that's really not uh, not not true. But we've somehow sort of gotten into this place where that's that being a mom means not being a person. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that's how it used to be either. No, I think that's right. I think that's kind of new. I mean, and that's interesting because I feel like the people who will say those things, I'm sure, are defining themselves as sort of like classicists in the mom genre, right? Like, my mom was there for me all the time. And like, that's what I'm going to do. But like, I, my mom was a stay at home mom with four kids. But she like volunteered at all our schools. Like she was working a lot, just not getting paid for it. Right? Right. And but she also would be like, go outside and play. <laughs> like, I wasn't yeah. her playmate. Do you know what I yeah. mean? I mean, I don't know. I find that so fascinating, too, because it's like this idea of like uh, martyrdom, you know, like you should give up any sense of your own identity or other sources of happiness. And like, I feel like if modeling is something we all agree is an important aspect of parenting or being a boss, right, or anything, then why would we not want to model that like, yeah, there are times that are hard. And there also are lots of sources of joy in life. And that having different avenues of joy helps to deal with the times that are hard in in one particular area. I mean, that's so interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think that, you know, I, I mean, I think a lot about this with my daughter and, you know, sh- kind of showing her like you, yeah, you can like have have a job and be a mom at or or not like you know depending on what on what works for you. But that you know that some of that some of that modeling is something that she will you know look at and and think about when she makes her own her own choices. Well, and the thing with sleep training, I remember feeling like you know that does when I was doing sleep training, it felt like it was like absolutely against every instinct in my body to let the yes. child cry. Yeah. And a really good friend of mine who's like. Uh, you know, pretty crunchy mom. She was like, the way you have to think of it is that you're basically saying to them like, hey, you're safe. You're okay. You can put yourself back to bed. You're teaching them independence. You're not, yeah. you're, you're teaching them that they don't need you to fall asleep, that they can fall asleep anytime that they want, wherever they are, whenever they're tired. And I was like, that is such a good mantra because yeah. that's true, right? Like if you can teach somebody to fall asleep on their own, when we have a 
culture of people with sleep problems. Like how great, what a great gift to give them, right? Like you don't need me. You don't need to sleep next to me when you're tired. You put yourself to bed. You're good, right? And it's like we all have these different, you know, and I'm sure we go to the people for advice who we feel like are going to give us what we're subconsciously looking for. But I also feel like it's so interesting for an idea of like, you know, something like motherhood, which is so individually special, but also so common in terms of, you know, womankind or whatever we want to say, like to write a book and then feel like you get attacked for it. That's a interesting phenomenon. Like everybody thinks they're an expert in this. So even if you're somebody who's like gone back and looked at all the data to like, how do you deal with that? Like, do you feel like you need to take people up on their arguments or do you just let it be? Sometimes. I mean, people it's not that common for people to like say, I disagree with your read on this paper. Um, So a lot of the criticism is just like, I can't, you know, you're just like trying to defend your own, you know, terrible parenting and like you should never be a parent. Some of it is just sort of like ad hominem and I I can engage with that. I mean, there are, there are places where people are, um, are very thoughtful and I try to, and I, you know, do make me think. So somebody the other day, posted a very long Twitter thread about so some of the discussion in the book about uh, milestones and sort of basically saying like, look, you know, the the part of the book about like, when should your kid roll over? When should your kid walk? The kind of focus in the book is the idea that, look, there's like a lot of n- variation within kids who are normal. So like, don't worry too much, you know, don't worry too much about this. If your kid's like not walking until 16 months, like that's basically fine. And this person was like, you know, look, I kind of see, I see what you're saying, but you know, for a lot of us with, with disabled kids, like we were kind of dismissed by pediatricians and actually like our instincts that there was something wrong were, were right. And so by sort of sending this message, like maybe some people whose, whose kids do have disabilities will get sort of feel like they shouldn't worry when they, when they should. And it was, it was a very thoughtful, I'm still thinking about, about kind of how to think about weighing those, those points. So there's some things like that, that are very nice. And I find like, okay, you know, this is a good, this is like a good way to engage on some of these, these issues very different than just saying, well, you know, it's fine for you if you hate your baby, but like, I love my baby. It's just like, not really that productive. Um, Right. But I mean, I think the point that you make is more of like, if at 18 months, they're not walking, then there's probably, you know, reason to look into it, right? But like, I mean, like, that's where I would, that's how I would read it, is like... I think that's right, but I think these guys' point, which is kind of interesting, was like, basically, if you're, you know, that if you, if your kid really has a problem, actually intervening at 11 months is better than intervening at 18 months. Mm. Um, And, you know, that some, that like, it's true that sort of idiopathically not walking at 12 months is like no problem, that sometimes... It, that for a lot of parents who's, who have disabled kids, they feel that they realized that there was an issue earlier and it took them a long time to to kind of convince somebody that like there was that they were noticing a problem. And I think that there there, there is some some tension there. On the other hand, you know, most kids are not disabled. And so most most of the time, if you sort of freaked out when your kid was not walking at 12 months, it would turn out to be mis, misplaced. And I think that's that's a little it's a little complicated to think about how to weigh those things. Yeah, I don't think your writing has ever said, like, don't advocate for your kids or like if you think something is wrong, don't, you know, don't follow up on it. I feel like you're pretty clear about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I try to be. But I mean, I also feel like you have to be sympathetic. I've had a couple of instances where people have like gone after me on Twitter and there are times where I like, actually, Jill's been like, don't engage. Just don't go on Twitter right now. <laughs> don't like, get on there. Because don't it's listen. so hard. You feel no, like people take hard. something and then they, they don't either 
you didn't articulate yourself properly and you want to correct it. Or it's that they picked something and then that thing spreads, right? And that it spreads out of context in a way where you're like, whoa, wait a minute, like that's not right at all. But people don't actually care. That's what I've sort of realized is that like, I think your point of like somebody who's really thoughtfully thinking about it is worth responding to. Um, but the but people most who of the are, time, yeah. But most of the time it's like it just turns into some sort of like weird ranting echo chamber where like they're actually like I had somebody who um, responded two people who were going after me and said like, you know, that's not really what she wrote, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, Hey, why don't you read the room? Like we don't basically like, <laughs> if you're going to defend her, like, please m- remove yourself from this thread. Okay, <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, I like the people who are like, well, I didn't read the book, but right. <laughs> based on reading one paragraph of this like newspaper article that someone wrote, here's what I think. Yeah, about exactly. Right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, thanks. Uh, Right. Uh, that's yeah, but you know, I find it very hard not to not to engage, um, not to engage. Yeah, I don't know. I told my daughter at the beginning, like before this, I was like, you know, when this book comes out, like some people are gonna say mean things. It actually turned out not to be as much true as I as I thought. But I was like, you know, some people are gonna say I'm a bad I'm a bad mom, and she was like, but I know you're a good mom. And, and I was like, all right. Then she was like, except when you make me practice violin. I was like, okay, well, what can you do? Right, right. But you're like, that's great. That's the perfect answer, actually. The perfect answer. You're a good mom, except when you're making me practice violin. That's right. That's um, so are there other things in terms of like sort of your purview through the economic lens? I mean, I feel like we're in a really interesting time for women's health in particular right now because of the sort of new interest in women being represented in clinical trials and I also think just like sort of a new attention to the fact that our systems are so different than men. And I kind of wonder from, I always ask people, like, do you feel like the more women get into positions of power, whether it be in government or corporations or, you know, in the sciences, that the more we sort of realize that we're different and that we need to also be attended to in terms of research in a different way, like not just lumped together? Yeah, I mean, I think that we that there there is a lot more work on men than there is on women, um, and women's health has sort of historically not gotten the same kind of coverage that men that men have. And you know, there is a need for there is a need for more of that. I you know, I think that there are some challenges in in doing this kind of work on on pregnant women for various ethical and other and other reasons. So I'm not super optimistic that we'll get more of that, but it would be good if we if we did. Um, So do you think that you're going to continue to focus on these kinds of like, whether it's parenting or motherhood or different sort of themes you've been successful at so far? I don't know. Um, I I think the jury is out. Um, I think it would be hard to write a follow up. Like it's the sort of sequel is is hard to envision um, just because uh, like as the kids get older, the problems get more complicated. Kids get more sort of different from each other. And so I think that some of this approach is is more limited. but, you know, I, I am interested in this space personally and professionally. And so I guess we will have to see. I'm Emily Kumler, and that was Empowered Health. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website at empoweredhealthshow.com for all the show notes, links to everything that was mentioned in the episode, as well as a chance to sign up for our newsletter and get some extra fun tidbits. See you next week.